0: east.co Hello, I'm Ted Sides and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Sachin Kajuria, a former partner at Apollo and 25-year veteran of private equity who recently authored 2 in 20, a fantastic insider's account of the private equity industry. Our conversation covers Sachin's rationale for writing 2 in 20, the strengths of private equity, areas for improvement, and needs for change. We discuss the defining traits of the industry across the sourcing process, depth of research, use of operating executives, ability to pivot, and democratization of alternatives. We close by discussing opportunities and risks going forward and Sachin's application of his insights to investing at his family office. Before we get going, we're just two episodes away from the end of season one of Private Equity Deals. If you're an allocator, private equity manager, banker, or a student of deals or businesses, this show is for you. Search for Private Equity Deals on your favorite podcast player and subscribe. As soon as you do, you'll get a chance to listen to Advent International's star, Trisha Glynn, discussing a corporate carve-out. Please enjoy my conversation with Sachin Kujuri. Sachin, great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you, Ted. Well, why don't we talk about your background that led you to writing this book?
1: So, I'm an investor, 25 years as a partner at Apollo. I'm now a limited partner at a number of firms managing my family office. And prior to that, I spent a few years in investment banking at the start of my career, but mostly an investor for most of my life. And it struck me that a lot of my friends who are doing great in their own professions, medicine perhaps, or academics or what have you, you know, started to invest as they progressed in their own careers for their retirement, for their life goals, and so on. And yet, for some reason, they didn't really understand or have heard much about private equity, even if they came across it in a professional context. And so it occurred to me over the years, we should try to get more people with a baseline level of understanding of private equity, not necessarily from an academic, technical point of view, and probably not even taking sides. But more about what is it really like on the inside as someone who is in the GPs, as well as an LP, and now, of course, an LP across multiple firms. And that's what led me to the idea of writing this book, which really should be for everybody who either has a pension or a retirement plan that may be going into private equity or may meet private equity in their business.
0: So, from taking your experience over those years into writing, this book to show the inside of how these work, what was your perspective going in?
1: Constructive, because I believe in what I'm writing. So constructive, but realistic. And the way I would describe it, Ted, is trying to hold a mirror to the industry. What are the good things you see as we all look in the mirror? Hopefully a few good things. Probably a lot of things that we wish were better. And maybe a couple of things that we wish just weren't there. And so when you look at it from that kind of lens, holding a mirror to the industry, much like the industry does when it looks at a target, looks at a company to invest in. It's not just looking at all the bad stuff or the good stuff. It's trying to get to the truth of what do we really see? Do we see a business that has strengths? What are they? What are the things that could be done better? What are the weaknesses? And is there anything drastically wrong that needs to change more urgently? And what are the opportunities? And so I tried to look at the industry from that perspective, constructive, but realistic. Well, let's break
0: that down. Let's start with the good. From the inside, what do you see as what the good things are about private equity?
1: The good firms that I've been involved with and I invest with now, they really do think like principals, not like advisors. They really are in it with an alignment. And this is rare. It's easy to say it's very, very hard to do day in, day out, good deals, bad deals, return of capital, potential loss of capital. They're really thinking about it as if they had all the money in the deal, as opposed to them having a fraction of money in the deal and most of the money coming from retirement systems, sovereign wealth funds, what have you. And so that alignment is Really powerful when you see people really feel it, Ted. They really feel it, which is like, this is our deal. Or if it's a mess, this is our mess. And we're going to clean it up. It really means that they're fighting for you. They're in your corner. Of course, they're making a great profit out of it if it works out. Of course, there's nothing to hide about that. But if it doesn't work out, they're not consultants, they're not just walking away. And the best firms, they're almost better on defense than they are on offense. So that's number one. Number two, the firms that have gained a certain critical mass, they have what I call in the book, the library. They have an amazing network of data, executives, knowledge, know-how, and this gives them a fantastic edge. Even before you look at things like size and scale, they have great information and they're able to capitalize on it. That's not something you can just replicate by hiring a bunch of folks. You could hire 20 smart investors from five different firms, but you wouldn't be able to replicate the knowledge base that's inside those firms. So that's number two. And I think number three, and we talk a lot about this in the book, the best firms have temperament. They are very good at pivoting when they need to pivot, sticking when they need to stick, and really looking at the long term. It's not a trader mentality. It's not buy low, sell high. It's not like, oh, what's the hot piece of information we can trade on? It's nothing like that. It's very much like we could own this for 10 years or more. What is gonna get us to the outcome we want? How do we recalibrate that outcome continuously? And how do we then reverse engineer into what we have to do today to be able to get to that outcome. And that takes temperament. That takes a sort of the ability to leap when there's chaos, the ability to freeze when you need to freeze. That takes a certain long-term perspective. So those three, I think, are the key things that I've come across.
0: On alignment, you said there are only a few firms that really kind of get this right. You could look at the economics, you could look at the structure, and firms generally have variations of a theme, but the same economic structure as it relates to, say, alignment with their LPs. So what is it about those few that get it right that differentiates the ones that don't quite get it right?
1: Well, in a rising market, you're going to find all private equity firms or most good private equity firms doing well, whether you're looking at their buyout strategy, their credit strategy, infrastructure, real estate, and so on. It's when things get difficult that you start to see bifurcation. You start to see the tide going out, et cetera. And that's when the culture of the firms, which absolutely has to come from the top, is really witnessed. That's when they have to bear their teeth because things are difficult. It's not easy to just buy a company, put some debt on it, wait five years, make a double, and then move on, right? And I agree with you 100%. Most firms have two and 20 or some variation thereof. How come some can't beat the S&P, whatever timeframe you look at, and some can. Some continue to provide... 500 basis points, a 1,000 basis points above the S&P for long, long periods of time. How is that? And it absolutely goes to the culture. And it's such an overused word. It's almost like you can dismiss it, like, oh, culture, yeah, okay, whatever. But what I mean is, it's really the day-to-day, Ted. It's the blocking and tackling. It's not the sixes they're hitting. It's not the home runs. It's the day-to-day, are they really living the deal? And that comes from the folks at the top who've probably been around a long time, or if they've been trained by the founders of these firms, they breathe it, really. That is what makes the 2 and 20 work. You can have the formula, but it doesn't mean you can actually make it work. And that's why I go to the fact that this is really a people business. There's nothing automated about it. There's nothing that a supercomputer can replicate. There's no ETF version of private equity or private markets more generally. It's a people business. And therefore, you have to understand the traits and DNA of those people because it's those people that are going to make the two and 20 work or not work. I'd love to hear an example
0: of something you came across, whether it was somewhere you worked, somewhere you didn't work, someone on the other side of the table, where you saw something that was revealing of the opposite of what you just talked about they weren't doing things for the right reasons.
1: I'm not going to name names of firms, of course, and I've worked at several firms, so we shouldn't make assumptions where this is from. There's a deal at Investment Committee and a number of the partners are against it because the data doesn't support the thesis, or at least there's enough doubt in the thesis that at the purchase price that's mooted, there's not enough room for error in that purchase price to be as wrong as one could reasonably be wrong, if that makes sense unless there's like a Hail Mary solution that comes out from nowhere. But because of relationships of the partner or partners involved leading the deal, they get it through. The comment being, well, we're doing this or we're going to make so much money, we're going to do this. And that did reveal to me, huh, you're basically bypassing the best bit of the firm and the culture to get the deal done. Now, fortunately... I must say, extremely rare, but Orsino equally, unfortunately, in both cases, resulted in a very poor outcome and in fact, capital loss.
0: I'd love to touch on this relationship between the library, as you said, all these resources and just the size of the
1: firm. Sure. It has multiple dimensions. So first, let's look at not necessarily size, but scope and scale. If you do one strategy, if you're a one-trick pony, even if you're amazing at it, you're going to limit yourself in scale until you start to do other things. We've seen that. Go back to the beginning of my career. You had TPG, you had KKR, you had Apollo, you have Blackstone, you have so many amazing firms. Not all of them were the same size or had the same Kager. 25 years later. And so when you look at that, you see, one of the reasons that some of the firms grew much more powerfully than others did was, yes, their poor strategy worked out well, but they also diversified. They went into other things that they either knew and did more of, or they hired great talent from the outside to merge with their own culture and pursue a new set of strategies too. So they may have gone into life sciences or infrastructure or more credit. And the more products you have on offer, the more there's on the menu, the more you learn about the ingredients, the more you learn about the flavors, if you will. And so the more strategies you're running, the different kind of information you get, but also the different lens of information you get. You could be a supplier to a particular industry in your credit business, but in the equity of a competitor in your buyout business. You could be the infrastructure of a particular company in your real estate or infrastructure fund, and then you could be the debt provider to the services aspect of that company in another fund. Or maybe you have a social impact strategy that's investing in that too. So you can see that the more games you're in, the more information you're going to gather. So that's number one. The second dimension to it is, of course, many firms are very careful as they should be with information walls. But you are gonna have opportunities where strategies can either work together, because let's say they're tackling a complex situation that requires more than one fund to look at that strategy. Or you could have certain individuals that are above those information walls because they're particularly senior and they have to take a certain leadership view. And when you have that ability, that flexibility, I would say, to either look at multiple strategies on the same deal or involve people who sit above the wall that also gives a different kind of learning and perspective. The third dimension I'd put to it is of course that even after you've sold a business, I think some of the best firms continue to monitor those industries. Not necessarily that same business that they've just sold, but certainly that industry. So if they pop back into that industry at some point in time, it's not like the best they can look up is a deal from three, five years ago. They'll still have folks analyzing the significant trends in that industry long after that business has been exited. And where it really gets powerful, Ted, is when you add it all together. It's not one of these things. And when you add it all together and you combine it with size, so you're not just able to do the billion-dollar deal, but you can also do the 5 or even $10 billion deal, then suddenly you get into a class of your own. You're like in, to use a soccer analogy, you're like in the Champions League, Of private equity. And that's what we found now, that there's a handful of these firms that are able to look at information, cut so many different ways, so many lenses. And as an LP, you can look at it and you can say, how amazing is it that some of these firms can have a flashcard or a CEO survey of sentiment, or they have the heat map of what's happening in each pocket of the industry ahead of what you read in the press. And so they can tell what's happening. And of course, they're not the only firms. I mean, investment banks would have this too for their clients and other things. But I think the perspective is a little bit different as a principal as opposed to an advisor. And so this, I think, is a huge information advantage because not only does it help you scout for new opportunities, it also helps you, I think, defend your existing investments better if you know what's coming down the road. I'm curious to ask what your
0: view is of... Let's just say the mid-market because a lot of these advantages you're espousing accrue to larger players, you get more breadth, more scale, more resources, more information. What's your sense of the investment prospects of the larger megacaps with all these resources compared to say the mid-market?
1: So I think the ones that do things really well in my view are able to adapt very quickly to changing environments, whether it's higher inflation and interest rates, slower macro, dislocation, one in a hundred year events like COVID. And so I think that although they'll find blips, they'll find certain investments don't do well. In general, across a particular strategy or fund, they're going to do quite well. And this is why with the previous question, I started with the strategies they run rather than necessarily the size. I think it's not necessarily just size is the driver. I think it's the people, Ted. If you have amazing people who leave one firm and start their own firm that's, let's say, five billion of assets or two billion of assets as opposed to 50 or 100 or 500, it doesn't mean that they're not gonna be able to replicate the success. It's because it's, again, it's a people business, it's the individuals. So I tend to look at, okay, who's doing that mid-market strategy as opposed to the fact that it's a mid-market strategy? But digging into that another layer, historically, some of the best returns have been found in smaller pockets of the market that have been less mined than the larger pockets. Now, I think there's an argument to say that they're harder to find these days, but it's pretty ripe at all size levels. But I think you can scale it. So for example, if you were a mid-market specialist, and you specialize in, let's say, five, six different industries, right? You've been doing that for a fairly long time, or you're staffed by great people that have left larger firms or other firms who have done that in their careers. It's not that hard to scale up or down in size. It's probably easier to scale up than down, I think that's right, but it's not that hard if you've got the right people. And so I'm quite optimistic. In fact, some of the things I'm looking at to invest in for my family office right now are actually a lot smaller than the mega funds simply because the numbers are out of this world. I mean, they're producing incredible numbers. And so it deserves a lot of investigation. I will say, however, that in the mid market, I think you ought to be more careful because there are a lot of copycat kind of funds, which do exist in the mid market that you do find at the higher end, but I think is perhaps more prevalent in the mid market. I'm not sure that's too controversial to say that, but I look at the people and I look at the numbers, and I think all those things are applicable in the mid-market if you've got the right folks involved.
0: As you were writing the stories in this book, what occurred to you that you said, look, there are things that are good with private equity, the things that could be better and the things that aren't there. What's some things that you see that you think could be better?
1: It has so many aspects. I think number one, and we should just get it out there because I saw that in the reaction to the book, we had generally some very good reviews, but we also had some comments from people that were reputable publications, but they just hate private equity. I think, number one, the industry can do a better job of presenting itself. I think, in general, the industry does, has done a much better job in recent years of, you know, emphasizing the positives it does for communities, for diversity, for all the right things, for the environment, social investing. But I think it could do an even better job. And I think the reason that would be helpful is that there will be less noise around the industry so they could kind of get on with their jobs, right? So I think that's number one. Number two, I think it's not unfair to say that although the industry has gone a long way in spreading some of the returns, and you've seen that on specific deals quite explicitly, where the returns are not just given out of the C suite, they're kind of spread across the companies that are invested. I think we need to see a lot more of that. I'm not sure you want to get into a world where you sort of necessarily regulate it or force it. It has to make sense and it has to fit with the culture of the firm and all those things. But I think it's so good when you see it being done, when you see so much profits made and it's spread not just amongst the C-suite, but it kind of passes all the way. I think you need to see more of that. I think that's fair. And then equally, if you look at the size and scale of this industry, 12 odd trillion, on its way to 20 trillion across private markets in the next decade, this is an important part of the economy, period. It's not just important to know if you're on... Wall Street. It's important to know even on Main Street. And therefore, I think if you look at the way the industry responded to assist in Corona and assisted with donations, with community service, with all those things, I think that's certainly a lot better than potentially it was in prior national or even international crises. But I think there's a ways to go. So I think this is an industry that's an important part of the economy. It's almost a steward of significant parts of the economy, certain significant industries. And I think once we start to recognize it as kind of like, these are sort of modern industrialists in a financial sense, I think there's a certain responsibility that goes with that, that things, we're seeing a lot of great things. I think we should celebrate that. We should be very honest and positive about that. But I think there could be more. And
0: what are the aspects that you think just aren't there?
1: This is changing. So if you look at who invests in this industry, It goes back to the first question we had about the perspective and the reason for writing the book. Not many people know about private equity as much as they should. Not many people invest in private equity as much as they could benefit from. So some folks still see this as, oh, private equity is only for people of a certain wealth or only for certain kinds of institutions. Whereas actually you and I both know that a lot of folks' pension plans are invested or retirement plans are invested in private markets, they probably don't know about it. And so what we don't have, being honest, and I think it's getting increasingly urgent, is a very good baseline understanding of private markets for everyone, in the same way that people know about public markets. Why should you only know about the acronyms that make up Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, Google, et cetera, you need to, as somebody with a retirement account, know about Blackstone, Carlyle, et cetera. You should, because these are kind of the equivalent of those big tech names that I talked about. It's big finance, or it's what I call, you know, mainstream active asset management. And so that is just missing, because if you asked most folks who maybe dabble a bit in their pension, or they they keep an eye on their pension, or maybe even they're slightly active investors, they do a little bit of stock trading, they'll have a sense of like, you know, should I be buying Disney? Should I be buying Apple? Should I be doing this? And then you say, well, what about private equity? Like, no, got no idea. But the check sizes are getting smaller, Ted. It's not just multi-million dollar tickets. There are $50,000 tickets. There are $20,000 tickets. There are now $10,000 tickets coming out. And it's not fully available to retail, but it's coming. And so I think ahead of that, there should be, education for everybody. And again, I think that what that will do in addition to better public relations, better communication, it'll lower the noise and it'll help people find private equity more accessible. And that's what I think is missing at the moment.
0: I'd love to dive into some of your thoughts being inside the industry on aspects of the process. So on sourcing of deals, you hear a lot about the word proprietary, Everyone wants a proprietary deal. What did you see being inside the industry of how deals actually get sourced?
1: It's a fantastic question. I think the reality is that firms of a certain reputation, so firms which are well-known, of which there are many, many firms, and certainly firms of a certain size, Certainly, as soon as you start to do deals which are like a billion dollars per deal or more, right? It's hard to say that no one else will ever look at that deal other than you between the time the idea comes up and you closing the deal. No one's ever going to look at that deal ever. It's going to be totally under the radar screen and no one is ever going to even have any idea that it's happening. It's a total surprise. Okay. That's very difficult. Why is that difficult? Well, let's start with the seller. The seller probably has some obligation to stockholders, to their investors, to actually check that the terms are good terms. And so at some stage, they will probably need to hire an investment bank or themselves or some other broker or something to check that what they're doing makes sense. You know, we're carving out this business. We're selling it to a unit of Carlisle or whatever. Is that the right price? Is that, well, then their advisor will be like, well, have you checked with anyone else? And they say, well, no, we decided not to check anything with anybody. I mean, that doesn't really fly. And so I think there's a certain recognition that you're going to have competition at some stage. But if you have competition at the stage where you have been sufficiently ahead of the game, you've followed that industry for a long time, you've possibly looked at that industry through multiple lenses, the credit lens, the infrastructure lens, the real estate lens, Maybe you owned the business before or its competitor. Maybe you looked at the business and backed away. Or maybe you were beaten at buying business because somebody else paid a higher price. Or maybe you're buying it out of bankruptcy and you'd looked at it previously when the company was not in financial difficulty. If you're ahead of the game, then you developed, I would say, an edge. And it's that edge that counts rather than necessarily getting so hung up on the fact it's proprietary. That's number one. Number two, there are ideas which are genuinely people of first movers. So the most obvious and probably the the most important, I would think, in the last decade is financial services. The firms that looked at insurance, banks, ahead of everybody else, have found that most folks at the similar scale have copied them since. And that tells you something. They had an edge. They had an advantage. It was proprietary. They had an idea. At the time they did their first, second, or third deals, they were ahead of the competition. And they've probably continued to evolve such that others, even if they are copying them, maybe those folks are now doing insurance 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 rather than insurance 1.0, right? Similar with energy. A lot of people, when I started investing We're looking at energy in a certain way. Then a bunch of people started to do energy in another way. And it was really pretty pioneering. The same thing, let's say, in pharma, buying drugs which are ex-patent or funding new kinds of drugs in life sciences. Or another great example, actually, probably another enormous one of the last 20 years is infrastructure. The folks in Australia had this idea to do infrastructure toll roads airports, towers, when everyone else thought it was a crazy idea, frankly speaking. And I saw it firsthand. Like, what are you talking about? This is you can't use project finance principles. This is a leverage buyout. You've got to use high-yield bonds. What are you talking about? You can't do that. So there are firms that have proprietary ideas. At the time they've consummated almost any of their deals, closed any of their deals, they're going to have competition. But it's about being ahead sufficiently either in the idea or in the preparation or ideally both, that actually you have the best chance of winning unless, Ted, somebody overpays so badly that you'd actually rather they bought it and then you'll maybe see it the second time around. You talked in the book about the exhaustiveness
0: of the research process that goes into finding these deals. And I'd love for you to give some color on what that looks like.
1: So a lot of it is pretty under the radar. You have folks in these firms who are toiling away, getting to know sectors way before the sun starts shining. They could be out there attending conferences, industry events, talking to CEOs, building up a Rolodex can take two, three, four years. And it could be two, three years before they even look at a deal or start to discuss. I mean, I saw that with infrastructure where, again, the folks down in Australia were talking to people about doing things like carving out telecom towers and buying airports. And it took years for the sellers to get interested in these ideas. And of course it cost them time, money and effort to invest that resource in developing it. But when they did and it came off, they were miles ahead of everybody else. The same applies for insurance, the same applies for life sciences. And so a lot of it is kind of patient, careful, not particularly glamorous research That's like, what is the thesis that we have? What are we going to present to the investment committee that is different? What's the edge I'm trying to create, sell, grow, develop? And that's basically taking a blank sheet of paper and trying to come up with something new. So it takes a while. And the early stages are not necessarily that high profile, but that's probably where the hardest work happens.
0: The use of operating executives is far more ubiquitous than it was some time ago. How does the relationship work with the operating executives, the investment deal makers, and then the company in a lot of these firms?
1: When it works well, it's seamless. You don't look at one person and say, oh, is that is that guy from the deal team or is she from the operating executive side? It should be seamless. And naturally, people will lean towards their area of expertise and where they think they can help. And so if you have one person who's more a capital structure kind of person, but has good insights on the operating side, and one person who's more an operating person, but has insights on the financing side, ideally, they work together. And generally, I've seen it to be pretty seamless, because when it isn't, those relationships tend not to last very long, and the teams tend to change.
0: You mentioned that Some of these large firms are really good at pivoting when needed, conditions change. I'd love to chat a little bit about evolution and innovation. We've seen, for example, growth equity become a huge thing in the private equity community where if you went back 20 years, it was a lot more just cash flow generative businesses on leverage only. Now, probably both. Love to hear your thoughts on what's changed over time and then how that's happened within the firms.
1: So, I think how it's happened is from the top, where at the firms that have evolved the most, you've had people consciously taking decisions that they want to look at things that make sense for the investors and grow in a way that the market is growing, that society is growing, move with the times. So in a certain sense, these folks at the very top can be generalists, right? Because they're like, you know, their background might be buyouts or distressed or what have you. But then they look at it and like, well, you know what, we really need to get into performing credit because we know a lot about distressed credit, but actually performing credit makes a lot of sense now or the other way around. And so it starts at the top with an openness to grow. And that's a little bit of an emotional decision as well, because if you don't have personal expertise in the areas you want to grow, you've got to bring people in. And you've got to make sure that works, that fits. And sometimes there are tough starts and there are restarts and there are hires that don't work out and there are teams that don't work out. I mean, we've seen it all. It's perfectly normal. It can happen in any industry. And so I think that intellectual open-mindedness is what starts. You then have a sort of emotional acceptance that you've got to, you know, hire and bring people into your culture, your firm and integrate people and learn from their culture as they come in and so on. And as that happens, you find that typically the firms merge a bit of their own DNA with the culture and expertise of who's coming in. So let's say a firm that does buyouts and credit starts to look at infrastructure. It'll take a person or two from the outside, and they'll work alongside somebody from the inside. And that's how you get that meld of here's an amalgam of what we do well. And what you do well, but let's do this new thing in our way so we can understand it. And sure, it can continue to evolve, absolutely. And it also needs to be sellable to investors, right? Because if you're going to go out and raise capital, and the firm has never done that before, and hired people coming in, it probably looks better and it makes a lot more sense, of course, to look like a joint effort rather than, let's say, like buying a unit coming in from the outside. And we've seen that evolution right throughout. So that's when it's kind of like a step away from what the firm is doing already. And then you have natural evolution. We talked about financial services. You have firms that are going into the pension space or going into aircraft leasing. They're doing performing credit and they start doing private credit. This kind of white space that is either left behind by the Wall Street banks, as we've seen since the financial crisis, or just space that's generated by these firms to say, well, listen, we're doing stuff which is adjacent to the sector. It's not that much of a stretch for us to learn about it and try to do some stuff in this sector too. And those are areas where you don't necessarily need to hire a whole team. You may hire one or two people, but you need to sort of ease your way in through research. And so that's why we've seen today that, you know, private equity, to be honest, Ted is very much mainstream. It's in everything from not just, you know, the big industries in the economy that you know about chemicals, energy aerospace defense, telecom, you know, financial services, it's also in lots of things that you don't associate with private equity. It's in dating apps. It's in cybersecurity. It's in college textbooks. It's in nurseries. It's in, to take a recent movie, it's in the Top Gun fighter jet training school. It's everywhere. It's in Chelsea Football Club. And so this is how it's kind of moved. And as private equity starts to sort of mirror the economy, it goes alongside what I've been saying with, There should be a general understanding of private equity because private equity has permeated not just Wall Street, but also Main Street.
0: So having sat on both sides of the fence of GP and LP, what are the things that you think you either don't have the information to understand or just misunderstood by those on the LP side that haven't sat inside the sausage factory at the GP?
1: I wouldn't say I've met many LPs who just don't understand but I think it's a different thing to know how deals work and to read the presentations and attend the conferences than necessarily seeing how it happens day to day. I'm not sure they need to necessarily see it day to day because otherwise, to a certain extent, Ted, they'd be working there, right? But I think the thing that, the way I would put it is that what I hope is increasingly appreciated is that private equity professionals do eat what they cook. They do act with an alignment. And I think it's one of those things that's kind of so obvious and easy to say and to point out, but until you've really seen it work at every hour of the day, it can be hard to sort of remember or even in some cases believe. And so I think the best way to evidence it, of course, is the results. And that's where some of the most interesting and memorable things that I've worked on or even that I've just seen on both sides of the fence have been where a deal hasn't worked out in the beginning, but actually the folks have fought tooth and nail to make sure it works out at the end. That's not something that an ETF can do, Ted. That's not something that is going to work out in the passive markets. It's only going to happen in with passive management. It's only going to happen with highly active management.
0: We hear more and more about, call it the democratization of private equity, the platforms to bring it down to high net worth and eventually retail. As that money seems to be flooding into the industry, how do you see it changing what happens with these firms and their ability to go out and deliver the way they have in the past?
1: So I think you might get slightly different products offered to retail investors than you do to large institutional funds. You might have different protections, different risk return dynamics. There's a lot of smart people working on all these things trying to figure out how do we address retail well rather than just, you know, the first step was like, let's set up a feeder fund and let's feed this multi-billion dollar fund with not just institutional capital, but retail capital for some kind of feeder or some wealth management unit or so on. And then there's like, how do we produce products which are specifically for the retail market? There's lots of different ways. And I think what you'll find is that as the menu available to retail grows, you'll find firms tend to emphasize or de-emphasize what's important to the end investor. So if you have, for example, certain retail funds, which they want to emphasize the social investing component even more, you'll find the strategy offered to them is different than, let's say, other investors. That's a possibility. The other way it could change the firms, I think, and I think this is very positive, is that as soon as we reach that tipping point where it's no longer Wall Street serving a bit of Main Street, but it's Wall Street and Main Street are kind of the same thing, it's just the economy. Because that's really where we are with public markets now. If you're an investor in Apple or Disney or any of these other great stocks, you're not thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm going into a Wall Street product. You know what the company is. You know what it does. And I think not too far in the future, probably next decade or so, where people start to say, yeah, I'm invested in buyouts. And so I was like, what do you mean buyouts? What are buyouts? Well, I put you know $10,000 into this buyout fund that kind of buys companies. It keeps them private. So you don't get the daily share price movement. Maybe I don't understand everything about it but they basically add some leverage to it and they try and sell the companies after five, 10 years and I get a profit off it and they make, they take some of the profit for themselves. So, you know, the more every day the lexicon, the language becomes, the more the firms will become themselves every day. And you're starting to see it. If you looked at the websites today of the major firms versus those same websites, even five years ago, it's not even close. Okay. You have continuous disclosure on social impact investing on diversity on impact in the community, if you our mission is to serve everybody, kind of thing. It's not there are times when a lot of these firms didn't even have a website. And so as this migration has happened from small private partnerships to private partnerships managing large pools of money to in many cases public companies, corporations, to now corporations managing both institutional and retail money, this democratization of finance, which is one of the key reasons that I read the book, it ends in a place where you realize that, you know what, these are just mainstream active managers. The difference is they're active. You've got passive investment, you have active investment. The passive investment guys, a lot of them do a great job, BlackRock and so on, Fidelity, Vanguard, whatever. And a lot of these private markets investors rather, they're just active investors, but they're also enormous. And so how do I construct my own portfolio that balances not just a bit of, let's say treasuries and stocks and some real estate, but also introduces a bit of private markets into the pie chart so I can access all of these things in a way that makes sense for me. And that's what I would hope all investors can learn in the coming years, which is not just, oh, I got a pension, I got a retirement plan, what do I put in stocks? What do I put in bonds? Should I buy my house? Should I buy another piece of real estate? These are my only objectives to also thinking, should I put 10, 20, 30% into private markets? If so, and it's an if, how? To whom? Who's the Amazon of infrastructure? Who's the Apple of buyouts? Who's the Microsoft of distressed? That's what we really want people to get to. So as you look out at the potential
0: for that to happen in broadening out these portfolios, we're also looking at a market environment that is more challenging than it had been in the past. Prices up, rates going up, leverage down, as you mentioned earlier. How do you think about, in your own investing, the opportunity set from here going forward?
1: So right now, one of the best risk returns is in what I call – hybrid capital or some firms call it tactical opportunities or things that have a lower possibility of default, right? The chance of losing money is lower and perhaps you give up a bit of upside. That's quite a good risk return. If you can punch out 15% IRRs, even with inflation where it is, even with rates where there are, but the chance of you losing money is extremely low, that is a good risk return. I wouldn't have said that a number of years ago, when actually you could probably add a 1,000 basis points to it if you are in the right buyout strategy. And a lot of buyouts these days, as we found in the financial crisis, are being done with less leverage or in some cases no leverage, temporarily possibly. And so you have to pivot as a private investor. You have to pivot as an institutional investor. You have to pivot, frankly, as a pension fund too. You absolutely have to pivot because the next two, three, four, five years, are not going to be the same as we've had either pre COVID or even through COVID. And so I'm looking at those kinds of opportunities. So that's number one. Number two, let's recognize that a lot of things are a lot cheaper. Let's look at technology. If you look at a firm like a Silver Lake or another fantastic technology investing firm, the prices at which they're looking at today in the technology space, which is just like just about everything, right? It's just so much lower than it was a few years ago. So There's a slightly contrarian aspect of it too, where I think you've got to be careful how you size it. You don't want to go too large in your pie chart. But if you can size it right, looking at stuff that is just generally a lot cheaper and what makes sense in that, I find attractive. And then of course, with inflation where it is, you look at assets that could be a natural inflation hedge. And some people have talked about doing more in infrastructure or more in real estate. And so I wouldn't say it's anything particularly revolutionary, but it's about actually doing it and then actually introducing a bit of it in your portfolio. And then conversely, it's about rotating out of stuff that maybe doesn't make sense anymore. So if you've got capital coming out of a fund that was a great strategy in the previous 5, 10 years, not necessarily just re-upping automatically, but also saying, well, let's be honest, are they really going to be able to deliver that Or should I sit the next one out and come back in five, seven years' time?
0: When you're looking at how you want to deploy capital in the space, how have you decided which funds to invest in? And maybe when to do deals versus invest in funds?
1: So I think when it's a scale that I couldn't do as a private individual or through a family office, then obviously you're going to be looking at firms that can look at a certain multi-billion dollar scale In the same way, there are firms that have certain expertise and things that I don't have a personal background in, or I have done a little bit of, but not enough to sort of feel, let me do this myself. It could be some more advanced areas of life sciences or commercial real estate or things like that. So I think it's a little bit self-selecting in a way. There are things that obviously don't make sense for me to do on my own. But I think when you look at things like distressed, when you look at individual credits, or you look at smaller buyouts, as we talked about before... There's a lot of things I see where actually what I'm being offered as an LP makes a lot less sense than me doing it to myself. Because, I, you know, if you take a distress fund or a credit fund, a lot of the things I've been offered, they're taking ten plus percent risk at least, but they're offering six seven. Doesn't make sense. And you're better off trying to create your own basket of whatever diversification you're comfortable with, if you know how to do it. But I think. I'm not sure that's accessible for everybody, but I think you know that's the way I've looked at it is trying to sort of be honest and open about things that I just know I can't do. And then things that I have done previously and done for a long time, just sort of back myself and be brave enough to sort of do things on my own in that sense. And And so far, it's working out reasonably well.
0: What are you most worried about with your investments and the strategies?
1: I think, again, it goes back to people. You can't control who's hired, who moves on. You want to see that hunger, that intensity, that alignment. There'll come a time when I know a lot of people, in a lot of firms. That may change over time, right? As people go off and do other things. And so that—that's probably the—the the thing that I, you know, I start to be like, who, you know, or like what, I, you know, <laughs> uh, no idea who's doing that deal or who's the lead on that deal. I don't even have their number. I don't know how to, don't know how to call them. I'm not sure how to. I think it goes back to the people. That's the number one thing that. I hope stays in the industry as high quality people with the alignment. So what's happened since the book came out? It's been a crazy experience. It's been incredibly positive. It has worked out pretty well with thousands of copies going across the board from regulators to corporates to individuals. And there's been a lot of talks. There's been a lot of private talks at corporates who've said, we don't necessarily want to sort of advertise this, but can we buy... We'll buy three, 500 books, whatever. We'll distribute it to our company. And can you do a couple of one-hour private talks where we ask you everything we, we really wanted to ask and get at least one person's perspective on it, one insider's perspective. So I think that's number one. And then number two, as you've seen, the market environment has been a little bit more challenging. So I've tried to make sure I don't take my eye off the ball on my day job, which is actually investing. And so it's only been three months since the book came out. But certainly the markets have kept me pretty busy, and I think we'll do at least for the balance of the year. What I would very much hope, and we have started to talk about this with the publisher, with the agents, is some form of screen treatment or adaptation, because I think there are so many stories that have not been told, and that would be very interesting and also fun for people to see. So I think uh, 2 in 20 being on the screen, I think would be a lot of fun for everybody, and uh, we'll see what happens.
0: What's your favorite story from the book?
1: That's such a tough one. I think one of the most impressive is Chapter 7, Never React, Always Respond. And it's about a leader who is under pressure because of a number of crises and comes out with amazing temperament and manages just to turn things around and just go from strength to strength. There's a lot of sub-stories in that chapter you would have seen. But I think Chapter 7 is one of my favorites. I also think Chapter 1, where the best game in town where there's an investment that a company used to own, then sold it and then suddenly they're looking at buying securities as if it's a public markets investment but they have great information. That's another good story. And then I think at the end of the book, there's a chapter where the private equity firm actually looks to buy out assets from another firm that's in trouble. I think we're gonna actually start to see a little bit of that. So that's something to think about for the future.
0: Great. Well, Sachin, I can't let you go without asking a couple of fun closing questions. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: So increasingly, it's tennis. And so outside of work, family, socializing, I picked up tennis in the pandemic. And uh, as a great outdoor sport, not that much contact involved. I got to say I'm hooked. One of the things about writing a book is you actually start to read a lot more. So I've been reading a lot. I'd give you those two, reading and tennis. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? We alluded to it before. It's when people leading a deal have an ability to push something through based on relationships rather than merit. And it's very rare. Which two people
0: have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: The first founder I worked for, incredible man, exceptional talent, and he's seen the movie before so many times. He remains an enormous influence and I'm incredibly grateful to have worked for him, with him, with people around him. And then I would say the founders at the last firm I worked for, I think a lot of what they've done, one or two of them in particular speaks for themselves.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Oh, there's many. I would say a number of things related to basic values and right and wrong, justice, all those things. All of that applies to investing. I think more specific perhaps in this context, and I put a quote at the beginning of the book, actually, that is relevant here. It's a quote from a speech by Roosevelt. It's not the critic that counts. It's the person in the arena. It's the person who's trying. And even if they fail at least they'll never fail being one of those folks who knows neither victory nor defeat. That's something that my parents told me in the very beginning. It's quite hard for a child to kind of grasp maybe, but as I got older, I realized it's not the cricket that counts. It's the person in the arena.
0: All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Oh, I would say... It's okay to keep things very simple and to just follow the plan. You don't need to elaborate. You don't need to get too distracted. If you have certain goals in life, certain objectives, you know, just follow them. And the way I would put it is make a long list of what you think you want in your life and go after it. And only change it if you really want to change the list.
0: Great. Sachin, thanks so much for sharing the stories.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Ted. I'm very grateful.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.